I'm Charlie Melcher, founder of The Future of Storytelling, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the FOSS podcast. The mission of the National Geographic Society is simple, to illuminate and protect the wonder of the world. Since 1888, it's been pursuing this mission through exploration, education, grant-making, and not least of all, storytelling. I don't know about you, but I grew up with a shelf full of the iconic yellow-bordered National Geographic magazines. Their extraordinary photography and writing sparked my young imagination. Today's guest, Caitlin Yarnell, has been with National Geographic Society for almost 20 years and has held many positions, including executive director of the magazine. Now, as chief storytelling officer, she oversees how one of the largest scientific and educational nonprofits in the world furthers its impact through stories. For Caitlin, her team, and the storytellers they fund, illuminating and protecting the wonder of the world is a concrete goal that they aim to achieve by telling the right story in the right way to the right person. If you're someone who wants to make a difference through media, you'll want to hear the insights that she has to share. Please join me in welcoming Caitlin Yarnell. Caitlin, it's such a pleasure to have you on the Future Storytelling Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. This is really fun, and it feels like it's a long time in in the making, and just so delighted to have you with us today. So I thought I might start by asking you this question about how National Geographic has kind of evolved. And I understand it's really sort of two parts now. Tell us about them. Yeah, sure, absolutely. A little history. The National Geographic Society is, is 135 years old. We have always been a nonprofit organization, always headquartered in Washington, D.C., never affiliated with the government. And and we have always been an organization that supports exploration and grant making. And um, our evolution really became from a group of people who wanted to give grants and, and explore the world and discover things. And then they found a way to communicate those through a little bulletin they put together that became National Geographic Magazine. Which we all grew up with, and I, my grandparents had the entire run of it. It was incredible, and just like early in introduction for me to the whole idea of storytelling in words and pictures. Absolutely, and I think every one of us who works there has a story similar, right? And most most of America does. But as as um, you know, that little bulletin grew into the thing we know as as National Geographic magazine. Um, so did the media empire in a lot of ways. So in 2015, the society expanded its joint venture that it already had with 21st Century Fox, who already was a majority owner of our television linear channels. So the society could really double down on its impact mission work. So in doing that, two entities were created, or I should say further separated. So all of the media properties, basically most things you can monetize. Think magazine, books, travel.com, all of that is held in a joint venture, operated and majority owned at that point through 21st Century Fox, now through the Walt Disney Company. So 
That being said, many of our colleagues on the media side still sit in the same building. We still operate together. It's still one brand. We still move through the world together. And um, for most consumers, we are National Geographic. And just give us a quick understanding of the mission work, the, the, the society. Absolutely. So we, we use three big disciplines, storytelling, education, and science. Um, our mission statement is to protect and illuminate the wonder of the world. So how do we do that? We do it through something called our explorers. Explorers is a, a really fancy term for our grantees and people we fund. So we give grants and funding to um, scientists, conservationists, educators, and storytellers, and they have impact in the world. So unlike other big nonprofits that are focused on number of species or hectares or books and classrooms, we're focused on our talent and our explorers and how they make impact in the world. Tell me more about this idea of calling storytellers explorers and, and giving grants and money to support their, their storytelling. Is, how does that work? So as part of this transition uh, away from, you know, being hands-on in the media company, um, I myself transitioned. I, I was on the magazine staff. I moved over, or I should say stayed with the nonprofit, but left my media team behind and really sat down and said, okay, how do we, within this framework of, of supporting explorers, how do we move in the storytelling space? So one of the things I'm most proud of is we are now the largest grant maker to individual storytellers in the world. Wow. So photographers, filmmakers, writers, cartographers, musicians, um, and their grants from $10,000 to multi-million dollar, multi-year investments. And it felt silly to come up with another title for them. They are explorers. They are. They explore the world um, the same way that our scientists do. So, um, you know, and, and we treat them the same. So these are our frontline eyes and ears on the world, and we gather them and we publish their work, and they are how we have impact in the world. Amazing. So I think about places like publishing companies or film companies who maybe invest in, in a storyteller for commercial outcome. You know, oh, you're going to publish a book, you're going to make a documentary, you're going to make a feature-length film. And they don't, you know, necessarily even give that many, you know, budgets to these types of people. But here you are giving to so many different storytellers. What criteria are you using to decide who gets the money and, and, and how much? It's not an exact science, as you know, um, we, but we try to make it as equitable and fair as we can. Um, first of all, we look at mission alignment for us. Now, the good news there is that our mission's about as broad as you could drive a truck through it, you know, to illuminate and protect the wonder of the world. Um, and we do that through many lenses, but, you know, they're as broad as wildlife human history and culture, um, ocean. So, so I often tell uh, potential applicants, if it feels like a National Geographic story, it probably is. So one, mission alignment. Two, we really look at, is this the right person to tell the story? And one, do they have the skills to do it? Do they have the experience to do it? Are they going to be safe doing it? And then also, do they have the particularly telling people stories do they have the sensitivity, local collaborators, really reason to tell this story and knowing that they are going to be telling it in a respectful, meaningful, and, and, and right way? 
And then also we ask a lot of questions around distribution and impact. If you get this grant from us, it's not just to tell a story about a thing because people need to know. Why do they need to know? What is the impact you would like to happen? And so that takes many different forms. Sometimes it's, you know, I want to make this story because I want to be able to get this on a local television channel so that the people who live in this place know about it. Or we've seen, you know, the work we funded be um, conveyed into public health campaigns. There's a lot of different examples I could get, but we really look at what's the story? Is it the right story for us? Who's the storyteller? Are they the right person to tell the story at this time? And then what's the impact that's going to be made and, and how is it going to get out in the world? Okay, so I want to take on all three of those. Yeah. First question about how you, it does, is it the right story for you? Is there an example of, of a grant you've given that helped you expand or redefine what is a National Geographic story? Yeah, so many. Um, this is not your grandmother's National Geographic magazine. When you think about the brand and what we do, we've given some incredible grants to you know, a composer, I'm thinking of one, her name is McClee Hadero, and she did an incredible body of work around her experience as an immigrant, a child of immigrants from Ethiopia, and what home meant and how that manifests itself in her own family. But she did it all through music and what that looked like. And, and I think that's incredible. Why wouldn't, that is a valid form of storytelling. Why wouldn't we push on that? And when you think about, it's still a National Geographic story. It's about migration and diaspora communities and food and culture and geopolitics. It's, it's all wrapped up. The medium's different. And really, like, pick, pick your subject. Is it, is it medium? Is it geography? It's demographics. Um, it's been really, really fun to think about how we layer this all together. Well, and that leads to the next question about how many people have you given grants to and what is the kind of distribution of them? Yeah, and our, our focus has shifted in the last couple of years, actually. In the beginning, we were giving a lot, you know, hundreds a year. And once you get a grant from us, you're always in an explorer. And so they're part of the community. We are now narrowing, and I'd say we're probably going to get 50, 60 grants this year to storytellers. We want to make fewer investments, a higher dollar amount, and really support these people better. Um, in terms of distribution around the world, I'm really, really happy to say we, we're at gender parity. We're funding work on every continent. We still, you know, full transparency, have some gaps in our portfolio of places that we'd love to find some more storytellers to work in. But I'm really proud of our ability to have spread across the world and um, while not leaving behind our traditional community of storytellers that I'm very respectful that, you know, many of them built the house we sit in. We give a large chunk of grants that are $10,000 each to, we call them our level one grantees. These are early career people, their first engagement with us. We gave, give a smaller number, think 20 or so, that are up to $100,000, that these are our established people we've already funded many times. And then we have about, I'd say, 8 to 10 pro you know, programs, uh, grants that are anywhere from 250,000 north of a million. What role are you playing in this kind of seeding, this just sort of Johnny Apple seed, if you will, of storytelling that the commercial market's not solving? Yeah, I think a couple things. One, what I hear over and over from the storytellers is we give them the gift of time. 
when you are on assignment, you are paid in day rates. Your editor is like, either we've got a deadline, we've got it out, or you got four days to get this story. So oftentimes it's, you know, they can speed up, they can slow down. And I just find that that gift of time, it delivers exceptional work. So I think that's one important thing. I think a second, probably more important thing is that, you know, these are passion projects. These are things that people really want to do. And so we open up that space. I think the third thing that we're doing um, is that we are evaluating and, and, and sorting based on impact in the world. Before I go on to another topic, I wanted to ask, how does someone apply for a grant? Natgeo.org slash grants, or just natgeo.org. Um, I will caveat that it, they are very, very competitive. I think at this point it might be easier to get into Harvard than a get, get a grant from us, but um, <laughs> we, we encourage people to apply and I don't want the perception to be that we only give grants to people we know. That is absolutely not true. We are surprised and delighted every grant cycle. And you can apply 365 days a year. How great. Well, I have a feeling we might have more than a few listeners who (laughs) might be visiting your site and sending in an application. We welcome that. How important or, or is it at all important to explore new technologies for storytelling? Most of the things you've mentioned are what today would be considered more traditional forms, written journalism, photography, video or film. Are you experimenting in, in new media? We are. We, we, we've done some really interesting AI and, and VR, AR grant making. Um, we have one explorer who I am fascinated by who has basically built a chatbot to tell fictional stories with a reader, user, where you can talk with this chatbot and it walks you through an environmental crisis and climate change. You know, so I think that's a totally valid form of storytelling and really cutting edge. That being said, I do want our work to go out into the world and to make an impact into the world. So I view it as almost a portfolio manager of how much are the things that are the bread and butter you know that our own media company is going to run with it, that um, the Times is also going to pick it up. It's going to be everywhere. I think that's also part of the National Geographic story that isn't told enough that, you know, because it is 135 years old, it feels like this stodgy old brand and it can, but, you know, Kodachrome was developed on our roof and we took some of the first remote images of wildlife ever and we pioneered underwater photography and we have a ton of patents for how to typeset on a map and projections in a cartographic space. So for me, it feels like it's part of the legacy and history of innovating it as as an institution, and we wouldn't be still alive if we hadn't. So let me ask you, you've mentioned a few times this idea of storytelling for impact, and, and I believe you have an impact story lab specifically. Tell me about it. The impact story lab is a part of my team that's separate from the grants and programs, and I am really, really delighted with the work that we're doing there. It is a maker slash research lab. We are a team of creatives who produce media, produce stories, but also we have a director of research who evaluates everything we do. We set out robust metrics for evaluation. We do training for other entities that want it on how to create stories for impact. We also work with academic partners to publish research. I'll give a couple examples of like scientists who have an impact they want to make in the world. And they think that 
media can help them achieve that. And so what we do is we sit down with them and say, okay, what do you want to accomplish? And really, we work through two approaches, um, a top-down and bottom-up. It's not rocket science. And, and it's basic strategic communication, lobbying, advertising. We're borrowing from other, other fields. And it's really stepping back and saying, okay, what's the change you want to make? Who has the power to actually make that change? And then how do we reach them? Can we reach them with media? Is that the most effective tool? And then if that's yes, how do we do that? And then how are we going to measure success? But in my understanding that you actually sometimes would make a, a short film just to show to you know, one or two people and, and with the intention that if you can get them to change their mind, they can just directly change the policy or preserve that part of the, the world. Or Yeah, our, our, one of our largest programs um, at the Society is run by explorer Enrique Sala, and it's called Pristine Seas. And it, he's working to create marine protected areas around the world And often a film will be made for one president, one environment minister. Now, this film is also presented with a robust scientific case and an economic analysis, right, of here's why this protected area is good for your country. But we know that humans are not only motivated by their brains, they're motivated by their hearts, and storytelling gets you there. And so... People who come from the media industry are like, you're going to spend how many hundreds of thousands of dollars for a film for one person? For how many eyeballs? Two? <laughs> Two, maybe four. Maybe he'll sh- watch it with his kids. You know, like, but I would say instead of return on investment, return on impact, right? Like, what what is your return? What is the return you want? And if the return is a protected area and that can be accomplished through spend a million dollars on a film, but it gets you the thing, I'd argue that that is money better spent than some of these things that we know reach millions of people and the, and the dial doesn't seem to move, right? Or it moves much, much, much slower. We just this March premiered a film um, with the president of Botswana. We chose to make a, a, a feature film in Setswana. Setswana is the language of Botswana. About 2 million people speak it. Right? That is a very intentional choice that we are going to screen for a president. That we um, secured um, weekly broadcast on Botswana public television for a year. And our decision to make the film in Setswana and to use local crew, because we know that will be better for impact, it's actually interesting that choices become very, very clear. And for us, that was getting it in front of, you know, the political thought leaders in country, and then also getting it to a broad swath of Botswana population. Then, of course, you make it in Setswana. Of course you do. And of course you hire a composer from there, because that's the, la- that's the music you need to hear. And of course you hire, like, you know, the sound guy from there, because he's going to pick up and know and anticipate sounds in a way that I wouldn't. Any other interesting insights or learnings from the world of telling stories for impact? I would say that um, transparency is really important for people. You know, there is this fine line of like storytelling versus journalism, advocacy versus documentary versus montage. I think just being transparent with people about your approach, what you're making it, how you're making it, and why you're making it. There's some really great 
research coming out at University of Florida on this as well about um, emotions and how we use emotions and what those look like. And, um, you know, po the positive emotions, awe, wonder, hope, parental love, pride, really, really, really to scientifically prove, proven move audiences more and for longer than that quick, like, adrenaline, fear, shame, you know, those are like the fast hit. Um, but people don't want to stay with it. No one likes to feel that way. And so they're going to run away from your content. So if you see a thing together, I think about your Explorers Club, right? If you see a thing together that is awe-inspiring, it's like it, it creates that collective bonding, right? So isn't that the magic of film? Isn't that why you want to go to the theater? Yeah, they've got better speakers and a screen, but also it's that collective gasp and awe. It's, it's why we like live music. It's why we feel compelled to show people the sunset and watch it together, right? And so it's, it's interesting, too. The other thing I've, I've been thinking a lot about is so much of this is, and I'm no expert by any means, but my any reading you do on like the evolutionary biology of this, it makes sense, right? We are, we're, we're primates with big eyes. We're tuned for visual storytelling. We were not meant to be individuals in the world. We, we move as groups. We were scanning the horizon for, for predators and prey, you know? And so I don't mean to oversimplify, but it's, we treat ourselves as very different, Right, and I think a lot of this is is pretty um, basic and intrinsic, and not that there's a not a ton of cultural difference and nuance and historical trauma that layers in, but I think that base brain psychology is there. And the other thing I'd say is, I feel like as an industry, particularly in the in the journalism or documentary space, we've been pretty precious about things and have been afraid to borrow from advertising. Lobbying. What? Dirty yeah. words. Stop. I know. <laughs> I'm putting my fingers in my ears. No. <laughs> right? Look at some really successful public health campaigns. People don't smoke like they used to. I can say the word condom and people don't run away. You know, so you look at this, these kind of public health campaigns that worked and then some unsuccessful ones. This is your brain on drugs. Remember, I mean, I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s, I remember this, right? And so if you think just anecdotally, that appealed to fear versus some of the other campaigns that appealed to like parental love. Secondhand smoke was a huge shift for that. It's not about you. It's about those around you. If this is true, that, that these positive emotions are the ones that are most meaningful and long-lasting and, and impactful to us, meaning make for change, why don't we have a world of storytelling filled with happy, loving, positive stories. A former editor of mine I worked for used to always talk about balancing the wonder and the worry. And I hold that really close. We, don't, we can't gloss over things. We can't be Pollyanna. On the other hand, there are always heroes. There is always hope. There are usually people looking for solutions. I hope. I, I don't, I don't want to say there's not, right? And so I think so much of it is, and it's hard in a quick, 
you know, news cycle to do that. I get it. You're you're doing the like top of the hour NPR news beat. You're not going to say, but let me introduce you to this one lady who's got a solution. If only she could scale it up, right? But I do think the heroes are there. The helpers are there. And people don't want to feel helpless. It makes you turn away. Um, and so... I think it's part of our responsibility, depending on what medium you're in. I have this incredible privilege to, to, to have time and resources to say, okay, this is a dire situation, but what are the solutions that are out there? Who are the people who are working to change this? How can you help? Whether that's you, president, create a protected area, or you, parents, make sure your kids know this. I think time is such a key element to this topic that we're talking about because the fight or flight instinct works best when you have very little time like the nightly news or social media versus these more powerful and longer lasting stories which require more time to tell and maybe more time to to create and absorb and to consume yeah i've often been asked you know who's national geographic's competitor especially when i was on the media side and my answer was we're not we're competing for people's time. Like, and I think about that a lot from a creator, but also a, a consumer perspective of we are competing against every book ever written, every mover, movie ever made, every cat video on the internet. And so you really, it's the gift of people's time. And so that's how you get people to linger too, is to give them something they want. Are there any stories trends that you see taking place in the world of storytelling? I mean, you get to see so many different storytellers and, and their ideas, their passion projects. What, what has shifted or what, what's emerging that you can see? I think there's a huge, particularly from the individual creator perspective, a huge shift in reckoning on um, what story should I be telling and whose story should I be telling? I think COVID and the pandemic really pushed this, accelerated it as people weren't able to fling themselves around the world as they used to. It's been really interesting to watch some storytellers that I love and admire who used to travel a lot who are like, you know what? I found an equally compelling, probably more rich narrative where I live and where I am. And I'm going to tell this story because I'm the person best suited to tell it. I've seen this manifested in some of the bigger productions where they couldn't send crew around and they had to find local crew. And they're like, oh my gosh, not only are these guys great and it reduces our carbon footprint and our budget to, to, to not fly our people there, but they're in tune to storytelling in a local context and know the places and the people in a way that we never would. You make me want to ask you about what you've seen or like just hearing you talk about this idea of passion projects and you, again, you're in such a lucky position to be able to get to see people's real passion projects. What makes for a passion project? I, I think that so many people, there's plenty of projects, <laughs> you know, people are, um, are busy, but what really differentiates something that somebody comes to because they have to, because they care so much, not because they're paid to or they were told to? I mean, so many people, it's the thing they can't get out of their head. And some people, it's, it's related to home. Uh, you know, we have a, an explorer, a, a photographer and filmmaker who has been working on wildlife corridors in the state of Florida for decades. 
and for him, it's like, this is home. I'm a sixth generation Floridian rancher. Like it's home and we need these wildlife corridors. And so it's like, he can't get it out of his blood. Like he was born into it. Some of it's that, but then some of it, I see some incredible examples of, of like a photographer who did an assignment about um, childhood marriage. It shook her. She became a different person and she has now launched a huge nonprofit and it has become her life's work. Another one of our photographers who um, I think it started as an assignment of looking at his um, gay marriage around the world and he now has a whole foundation called Where Love is Illegal because it somehow tapped into their identity, whether that is as a woman, as a mother, as a queer person, as a ally. I, you know, I don't presume to know why or how, but I see people come to it probably in those two camps. One is either, you know, it is so core to who they are, be it geography, identity, something that is part of their identity. But then the other one is they see something that they couldn't shake out of their head. And if you ask most people, I think working storytellers, they'll tell you, like, what's the one thing you want to go back to? I've yet to see someone, like, hesitate. They've got their list of, like, I went there on assignment, I crewed a shoot there, I did something, and, man, there's a lot more there. Caitlin, you have one of the coolest jobs. I mean, that's, I'm just so impressed. It's so amazing that you are, are, in the position that you're in, that you're able to support such a broad community of storytellers around the globe and that you can do it, you know, from this place of really wanting to change the world. I mean, I think a lot of people say that, but that's not what's driving their their decisions. It's not what's what they're measuring, you know, uh, they're measuring eyeballs or dollars. And and it's it's really special to be able to see that National Geographic is so committed truly to illuminate and protect the wonder of our world. So thanks for being on the podcast and sharing some of your wisdom. It's great to see you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. I'm Charlie Melcher, and this has been the Future of Storytelling podcast. Thanks for joining me today. This month, I'm excited to share that we're conducting our first ever community survey. Please help us better understand our FOST family and tell us what you'd like to hear more of by visiting the link in this episode's description. We really appreciate your feedback and it will help us better serve you. The FOST podcast is only one of the ways to stay up to date with the latest and greatest in innovative storytelling. We also have a free monthly newsletter and an annual membership called the Faust Explorers Club. You can learn more about both by visiting fost.org. The Faust Podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our friends and production partner, Charts and Leisure. I hope to see you again soon for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe. Stay strong and story on.